Welcome back to another episode of Backlash Podcast. This week, our guest is Spence Petros, and Spence is a almost 82-year-old musky angler who is, his, his list of accolades is long. He is, uh, in 1989, he was inducted into the Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame. He's written many, many articles. He's been on Muskie Hunter TV with Jim Sarek multiple times. He used to be the editor of Fishing Facts Magazine, and quite honestly, he brings a ton of knowledge to the table and we're, I'm sure we're just going to scratch the surface in this one and Brad it's exciting when we get you know anglers of of this that have this much experience in the game yeah hands down Jeff I mean he grew up fishing right and at 82 years old 81 years old wherever he's at right now nothing but experience to to basically volunteer to expose and and share i mean that's the cool thing about spence is he's an educator he wants everybody to understand and learn and he's willing to give it all up yep and so this is going to be an exciting episode i I like i like talking to you know old time musky anglers i don't want to call him old because he's still got a lot a lot of life left in him but as and you'll you'll hear that i mean he's still out musky angling at I mean, he would just, I think just recently he said he caught a 50 incher and a 48 incher or lost a 50 and caught a 48. So he's still out there living the dream, but, um, and, and he's not doing it, you know, with, with the advancements of technology, Brad, he's just doing it with, you know, blood, sweat and tears and, and going back and, and years of experience and, and using his eyes and his ears to put muskies in the net. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, as fishermen today in today's world, we all neglect to use some of our own mental capabilities where we rely on electronics all the time. I know I'm guilty of it at times, but uh, that experience, it's probably the best tool that you could have as as a musky angler. And we say it all the time, you know, time on the water, right? But at the end of the day, I think we, we kind of, what's the right way to say this, Jeff? We, we puzzle ourselves with uh, issues because oh this graph isn't doing what it's supposed to or this map isn't completely right when you can go back to your roots and actually get it done i think one of the neatest things that dick pearson has always said i'm rocking string meaning rocking string as his sonar right you know some of these anglers that did it before all of these really cool tools that we know as electronics today they still get it done without them absolutely you know, Brad. Other than uh, you know this brief introduction, I don't think I have much to add to the to the uh, the conversation as far as an intro goes. Because for anybody that cares, we recorded this episode actually before our episode with Tony Grant came out, so we're definitely ahead of the game, Brad. I'm hoping that maybe with the uh, you know us being a little bit ahead, it gets you you and I a, a couple extra minutes on the water. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's looking like by the time this podcast comes out. It looks like winter's going to be here, but uh, hopefully the weatherman's a little bit wrong and and it pushes through the month of November. I mean, here we are. It's November. It's hard to believe, but it feels more like September at this point. Um, but I know the bottom's going to fall out. We're just have to, you know, make use of the time. And we'll say it as we say every single week. If you're looking for gear for your next musky fishing adventures, make sure you check out TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. Or your source for all things musky and you should probably also go visit brad and carrie over at musky mayhem tackle and that's real simple it's musky mayhem you can go right on our website and build a custom bait or find some of our old trusty standards all right well enough chit chat let's go uh dial up our conversation with spence 
All right. Our guest this week is none other than Mr. Spence Petros. Spence, I want to thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule. For anybody that doesn't know, uh, Spence has been around the muskie industry for it's it seems like forever. You know, he was uh, the Fishing Facts magazine, I believe, is the editor there, and he's written numerous articles. In 1989, he was inducted into the Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame. So. Uh, Spence, I, I really want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to talk to a couple of guys like Brad and I. We probably don't deserve uh, your attention, but thank you for giving it to us any, anyways. Well, I don't agree with that, but it's always a pleasure to do something uh, to help promote muskie fishing or entertain some muskie fishermen or whatever. Sure, absolutely. So, Spence, you know, before we get started, I just I just clarified with Spence before we started on this podcast. He is going to turn 82 this December. And he's still out chasing muskies, so that's something to, that's a goal for all of us to shoot for. And Spence, obviously, with you know that much time in the muskie industry, let's uh, let's talk about the history, I guess. Why don't you kind of give us your story and and maybe give us a why you even got involved in muskies? Because if you were the fishing, you know, involved with Fishing Facts magazine, that wasn't a muskie specific magazine, and I'm certain that you could have went multiple directions. What attracted you to muskie fishing? Well, I, I did all kinds of fishing ever since I was, you know, two or three years old. My dad and five uncles had fished, and I was the first grandchild, so I really had no choice. You know, they just took me, whether I liked it or not, but I did like it. And then um, as the years went on, and this whole structure fishing thing became, you know, what is structure with this and that? And I had the good fortune to fish with Buck Perry a couple of times, who, you know, just called the father of structure fishing talked about the structure and the break lines and the edges and how weather and water conditions. It was really the first scientific, knowledgeable stuff that ever came out about fishing. So then I started a structure fishing class with Tony Portenqueso, who was our weed guy and uh, fishing facts. He used to start, you know, did articles about the cabbage in Coondale and the Kabamba and how to read the weeds and all this kind of stuff. So Tony, Tony was an avid musky fisherman. So in September of 1973, well, he invited me along on a muskie fishing trip. We're up at Deer, Deer and Bone Lake in Polk County, Wisconsin. And, you know, the first time out, uh, I caught a couple. They weren't big, like uh, 115, 118 pounds, like that. And, and it just sort of got me going. So then I wanted to catch a big one. And I caught a lot of fish up there, but those lakes were not trophy lakes. And I figured if I catch 100 of them, one of them's got to be, you know, 30 pounds or more. And well, it wasn't the case. And they were, you know, numbers lakes. And so then uh, you started going other places, you know. And funny story is a friend of mine, his wife and my wife and myself were having dinner. And, and she said, well, you never really caught a 30-pounder, have you? I said, no, but I got to catch one. And I said, okay, I can get one. Oh, yeah, well, let's bet $100. I said, okay, I'll bet you $100. So I, you know, was fishing Wisconsin, Minnesota, and, that, and weather was getting bad. So I went out to... Pymatunian Lake, uh, no, I'm sorry, Conneaut Lake in western Pennsylvania, and boom, on November 7th, 1977 or 78, I caught my first real big one. So I, I called her on the phone, and she answered the phone, I said, hey, Dar? She goes, yeah, I said, you lost. And I hung up the phone. <laughs> so that, uh, that got me started on the bigger fish, starting to realize that you got to go where they're at to catch them. Not that if you catch a hundred of them, one or two are going to be thirties. They go to places if you can catch, you know, five or ten, you're going to get a thirty out of there. In some places now, you know, you catch five or ten, you may get two thirties, three thirties, or fifties. I'm sorry, out of there. 
So, I mean, that's what sort of started it all. And then, you know, what it is, once you catch the bug a little bit, then, uh, and then I learned when to go and when not to go. Uh, that comes later and where to go for big fish. And, and I really won't fish anywhere that doesn't have potential for a big fish. I just don't care. You know, it's, you know, I'm not going to shake off a 40 incher, but you know, if that's all there is, I'm going to go somewhere else and try to get a big one. There's nothing as exciting as number one, a big buck in bow range or, uh, you know, 50 plus inch you're hitting on figure eight. To me, those are the two best things in the outdoors. So let's talk about the Fishing Facts magazine ends of it. When did you get involved in that? I started in August of 1973. And uh, it, you know how they have the international trade show now, the fishing thing? Well, it was held in Chicago at the time. And my first day on the job was going to the show. And there I was. I met you know guys that had written articles that were you know, guys I looked up to for years, you know, Tom McNally and um, you know, the other guy, Bauer, and the guy from Minnesota and guy here, guy there. So I started meeting them, you know, a bunch of these guys, and it was like a big thrill for me at the time. And later I became real good friends with Tom McNally, who was the outdoor editor for the Chicago Tribune for many years, and his son, Bob, still a good friend of mine. And, and then uh, that was my first day, and, you know, I, I wasn't a literary genius by by no means but if you looked at all the guys we had at fishing packs um the boss viewed me as the best of the worst <laughs> i got the job as the editor and you know well i learned on the job and I'm, I'm certainly not a great writer i think i'm a good teacher and to me that's what i do best whether i had my fishing classes for 41 years in chicago i've had probably three or four hall of fame guys that came through my classes plus dozens more that are in the industry one way or another as reps or guides or whatever the case may be. And to me, that's the most gratifying thing is just showing people, teaching people. And, you know, after I did well in that tournament last week and I sort of said the pattern I was doing, what people aren't doing, and this is why I do it. And I try to do things out of the box. And some of the guys, why did you tell people why you did that? Well, one thing that, Buck Perry said to me many years ago, he says, you can become, you become as good as you can become by, de- by being, being a teacher. And I always had that in my mind. Plus, I always like helping people. In my classes, when I started the guiding business, even today, most of the people on my uh, guide business are from my classes. And it's great to see you go out there one time and you all know, catch three fish that are one, and next year will be three to two. And the next year we're catching the same amount, and better yet, they might even catch a couple more than I do. And to me, that makes me feel good. And I like that. I'm not out to show anybody, oh, I catch more fish. You know, I don't need that stuff. You know, I just don't. I'd rather, I, I don't want to catch more fish, unless it's Babe Winkleman. And if it's Babe Winkleman, who is the ultimate fish hog, then I would, uh, I would do it. Then I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell him if I was doing something unless he spied and watched me do it. And then, what are you doing? I'm not, nothing, nothing. <laughs> But I uh, guess he would do it to me. But outside him, everything else is, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be there like it with anyone else. So Spence, one thing I've heard you mention now twice was Buck Perry. And quite honestly, it's probably one of the, I'd say it's one of the books I read that probably maybe helped me understand, you know, deeper water fishing more. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, it's spoon plugging. But aside from the spoon plugging, it's more about fish location, isn't it? Versus, you know, the spoon plug is a yes. tool, but there's many tools that could get the same job done that a spoon plug could. It was just more Absolutely. about, you know, fish, you know, fish behavior, fish location. 
you know, I'm I'm almost jealous that you got to, you know, to fish with him because quite honestly, like I said, he was that was one book, the Buck Perry spoon plugging book was one book that when I was reading it, I think I probably had my best season ever because I was thinking maybe a little bit more outside the box. Do you have any insight onto that? Is you want to talk about it? Because I'm sure you've adapted a bunch of what he's what he's uh, you know brought to the well, table. Well, that got me started. Yeah, that got me started. I went to the classes taught by his right hand man, uh, Terry O'Malley, at the time in Chicago area, who was was still is a really a good spoon plugger. And it's not the magic lore or anything. That's just part of it. As you said, the word is a tool. It's a tool to do certain things. But the big thing about it is the knowledge. The explanation, you know, when the fish aren't biting, why are there? You keep casting to the shoreline. Well, they're not there. They're behind you. And where do they hang out? You know, they hang out on, uh, you know, structure, on edges and, you know, piers and and fallen trees. That's not uh, structure. You know, that's cover. And the cover could be better or worse based on its relationship to structure. You know, if it's on a big flat, that's one thing. If the river channel comes 15 yards away from it, well, it's going to be better because it's related to some structure, you know, that type of thing. So I was, you know, I was fishing with Buck Perry one time on Wren's Lake. And um, I had my boat, he's driving my boat, and this is a shallow flatland reservoir. So he's, and we're following the river channel. He said, oh, okay, the river channel, okay, it makes a left turn up there. And sure enough, the river channel makes a left. And I go straight now for about 100 yards, and all about looks like it forks off. And I go, how in the heck do you know what the river channel is doing? that you never even been on here. So there's several things I've learned from him that I've heard, never heard before. I've never heard since. So he looks at me and he goes, well, shad slicks. I said, shad slicks. I said, what are, what are shad slicks? And he goes, well, it's a little calm. Now there's a little bit of a slight ripple on the water. And, and what happens, these schools of shad will be along the river channel and they'll emit oil. So you'll see these little slick areas along the channel. And you'll know that there's a school of bait fish there, a school of shad hovering on the structure on the edge of the channel. I says, oh, okay. I never heard that one before. Then you're eating dinner and you got a napkin out and he's drawing me points on reservoirs. Now this kind of point here will never hold a school of bass because it breaks like here, it breaks down here at 20, then all of a sudden it, it breaks there and then goes down a slow taper into the river channel. But now this point where you see it breaks down to the approximate depth of the channel, this could hold a school of big bass because it's less distance for them to come from deep water, and boom, they're right on the structure. I never heard anybody saying like that before or after. And, you know, he just forgot more than most of these guys know nowadays. But, you know, he put a bunch of patches on, and you run around and fire spinnerbaits in the shallow water, and you think you're a bass expert. So, I don't know. It's just, it's just a shame that so much of this good stuff has gone over the heads of, of so many people. Now, you get electronics. You know, they show you the fish, they show you this. You guys, I'm up in the Lake of the Woods fishing, and it takes me, you know, 10 trips to go through a series of islands to get to point A or B. Now you get somebody and they put a chip in there, and right through like that. It's just, I don't know, it's a lot easier now. It's just, um, I don't begrudge anybody. I'm just saying that's the way it was, and it's the way it is now. And it, it, was, it was fun to be there on the, the golden age of fishing, fishing with a lot of these break, breakthrough people. You know, Al and Ron Linder are very good friends of mine. Babe's a very good friend of mine. Um, you know, so many of these people in the industry. I mean, first a, a bunch with, uh, you know, Roland Martin. We did a bunch of TV shows. And I know all these guys, you know, and, and it's just we're sort of on the same path. And, and we're all in our 70s now or, or early 80s. 
And it's just to see how this transition, how we learned and we did this. And, you know, I had Fishing Facts magazine in the wintertime. Got it, you all pumped up over everything in there. And I just couldn't wait till spring to try this out and to try this and to try that. But my forte in the beginning, I was a river fisherman. I was fishing Wisconsin and Mississippi rivers and multi-species and all that kind of stuff. And I didn't have depth finders or anything, but I could read the currents, you know, and I knew wing dams, I knew this, and I knew that. And when I first started writing articles, it was on river fishing, on the Wisconsin River, on the Mississippi River, and all that kind of stuff. And that's how I really got my start in the fishing facts when it was just a little newspaper. And then as it grew and grew and grew, and the circulation was doubling every year in February of 1970, it went into a magazine format. And then a couple of years later, uh, the owner, George Pazic, asked me if I would like to come and work for him. So I thought long and hard because I would probably take about a $5,000 cut from what I was doing to go work for Fishing Fix magazine. And that was in 1973. $5,000 then was, you know, a more considerable amount than it is now. But I did it. And things worked out good. You know, I had the fishing schools for 41 years, and that helped. And um, I did a lot of seminars and sports shows and, you know, just all kinds of different stuff. So it's worked out good. Now I'm living in my retirement house right near Lake Geneva, where I always wanted to be all my life <laughs> so, with my wife and my dog sitting on my lap right now. And uh, if the weather's right, I go fishing. If not, uh, I'll break up leaves. <laughs> then I guide like May, June, early July. And then I usually don't after that because I usually go to Canada in July and August, but then with all this border junk that's going on, that sort of puts a halt on uh, uh, all that kind of stuff. And then I had a heart procedure where I had a, get a new valve put in about a month and a half ago, you know, that kind of thing. So that slowed me down for a couple of days and uh, that's it. So Spence, you, you were kind of talking about, you know, I think as uh, fishing has progressed with electronics and so on and so forth, and, and I was fortunate enough to fish before all of the electronics, right? I mean, there was sonar, but uh, I watched the map card come about, and I've always said that there's like a generational gap, and what I'm talking about, everything I did when I first started fishing was off of depth, and I still find myself using that depth as my pathway i guess is the best way to say on um, i want to be on 20 foot break and i'm going to hold my boat on that 20 foot break whether i'm approaching the structure however i'm approaching that structure and then i watched the next generation say 10 years younger than me they grew up fishing with map cards they rely on a map card way more than depth and a lot of times in a lot of cases though that map card is not necessarily the right way right uh, not everything is mapped 100 percent and now today I watch like say 20 years younger than me and don't, don't get me wrong. I utilize side imaging, but uh, I watch a, an angler that's maybe 15, 20 years younger than me. They rely on their side imaging or potentially even live at this point. I think you hit it on the head. I think that a lot of times our own senses and visual ability can present a lot of good things to fishing in general. And I think we've totally walked away from that. Not that it's all bad, but I do think that there's some point in this whole fishing world where you need to go with your gut and your eyes. 
Would you agree with that? Or absolutely, absolutely. A lot of it is instinct, not just following this or following that. And you know, if I follow an edge, it's to find an irregularity on that edge. You know, an edge is a brake line, so that's part of what Buck says. And a brake is something on a brake line. It could be an erosion cut on a drop off around a riprap bank. That's a brake on a brake line. It could be a fallen tree hanging over a channel. It could, you know, like that. So, you're, yeah, you can follow things, but you're looking for that something different. You're looking for the break in continuity. And if you got all this other stuff in your brain, you just, you know, I don't know. It's just, I think you're missing a lot. It's not if you have a real good fisherman that's been through everything and they got that. I mean, it's, I was up at Green Bay, you know, we were drifting and casting the muskies all of a sudden. I was with this Kyle Sikorsky. He was a real good guy. up there, a nice guy, a friend. And he'd say, oh, there's one to the right. And he had side imaging, and you could see a muskie, you know, to the right. And make a cast over there. So you'd make a cast over there, and most of the time nothing happened. And you just keep on drifting. But, you know, it shows you where every couple of days you might get that one extra fish based on what you're doing like that. But, you know, it is what it is. If you're a guide, you're going to do everything possible. But, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, I'll catch enough fish. I'm not worried about it. Oh, and I guess I have good instinct on things, so it's carried me long enough. And you know, being eighty-two years old, I'm not gonna go and spend another four or five thousand dollars on electronics. <laughs> I hear you there. That is one thing. You know, there is a there's a gap on the financial side of that for a lot of anglers, and I'm guilty. I mean, I do spend the money, and the reason I do is because I want to try to learn as much as I can about the electronic side as well as the fishing, but. Uh, are you utilizing any of those newer tools in your boat today? Oh, not really. Well, I have a side imaging thing that, uh, uh, but no, not, not that much. You know, I'm right now looking for the still green weeds that are still standing. Um, I really don't need much. Well, I guess side imaging would help, but I just, I don't know, I might throw a couple of shallow running lures and go all over the flats and waypoint when I see these clumps and they drift back through them. Um, that type of thing, but I, I combine trolling and casting a lot. You know, I troll to discover things and I troll, cover a lot of territory. And if it's, if it's real, um, low light penetration, I might run stuff just under the surface. If, if the light penetration is a little more, I might be, you know, halfway down just over deeper low weeds. And you know, I might be running the same grass fringe way on the outside with crankbaits. You know, I, I don't know, just things I've done all my life and it, it seems to be working. I'm sure there was a lot of people in that uh, musky tournament that had all that kind of stuff. You see guys out there with, you know, six boards going and other guys with the side imaging and that's, I mean, uh, whatever, the one that uh, shows you the fish biting. I was out with a friend of mine who was a guide yesterday and he had this thing, you know, hey, there's a school of them down there and dropping stuff down on them. They wouldn't bite. Oh, I don't know what they were. It could have been a little perch, but uh, I don't know. You know, to me, I do what I do. I've been doing it long enough. I'm happy with what I do. I catch enough fish. If guys were just killing them all the way around me, I wouldn't do it any good. It might be a different story, but, you know, I'll hold my own and do my hard, uh, my old fashioned uh, school, hard school stuff. So that's the way it is. 
you know, so let, let me, uh, I know Brad jumped in there on electronics, but I want to jump back a little bit to, uh, you know, like the mo- movements of fish. Cause I know that was a big thing that, you know, Buck talked about, but a lot of what his book talked about was, was bass fishing. And so you couldn't make the exact relationship to muskie, but do you find that, you know, muskie move similar to what he's talking about? Will you see them, you know, move from shallow to deep over the course of a day, things like that? It just, I don't know, it's hard to say. Muskies will suspend more. Muskies, it just depends on the weather. You know, it just depends. If it's bright and sunny and calm, they're not going to move. They're not going to come up in a shallow water most of the time, although there are a couple of occasions that they will do that. But to me, weather trumps everything. That's the most important thing. Overcast guys, chop on the water versus, you know, the opposite, bright, sunny, and calm. Now, right now, um, when you got these late-season warm-ups like this, one thing I have found through the years is a lot of times these big fish will move to the inside edge of the weeds. And I, I saw this first time happen probably 35 years ago when we were on Deer Lake and fishing all our good spots on a day like today and saw one small fish on the outside weed lines and points and humps and for whatever reason, I remember Buck saying, you know, the fish are always, I know, always know where they're at before I go in the lake. And everybody goes, yeah, where? They're in the shallow, the deeper, somewhere in between. I said, okay. So I decided to go shallow. We went on the inside edge of the weeds with jerk baits and we ended up catching five or six fish. They were around you know, 12, 14 pounds to about 22 pounds. And then oh, probably about 20, 25 years ago, we're up in Canada at the Lake of the Woods by Bill Sandys. And that would have, was a day like, you know, another real warm day after the turnover and like the end of October and not catching anything. We see that beautiful day like this, you ought to see something. And I start thinking about how those fish moved up on the weed line inside the weeds on that warm day. I said, you know what? Maybe that's happening up here. There was no weed line, but we were fishing a place, this place called Lily Island. And you had a drop off that goes all the way around it. We normally troll lures on the edge of the drop-off. And I said, you know, well, they're not going to be on the weed, but they might be on top of the drop-off. So I stood up running the boat so I could see the shallow rocks, held the rod toward the shore, and made one trolling pass. And the first fish I caught was about 20 pounds. The second one I caught was 25. The next one I caught was about 30, 31. And then I got another one, about 37, on the one trolling pass. And they were all up there. All fish came on the inside line. My buddy had the outside line, didn't get a bite, but that was that same theory how that would happen. So I'm, I'm saying, you know, most of the time, this and this and this, but, you know, nothing is written in stone because there are exceptions. And one of them could be that, you know, that late fall trend. And if you're out there fishing, the stuff you normally catch them on, it's a real warm late fall day after the turnover. You know, you got to look for something like that. Another thing, Al Linder and I were fishing a muskie tournament and um, the Wisconsin State Championship. And the day before the tournament, there to practice day, I think we caught like seven or eight muskies. And everybody's just about ready to give us the trophy already. Like, oh, well, you guys, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then um, the, the tournament started and got overcast and everything. And then I think we ended up in second or third. But the, guy, the guys that won it were casting bucktails under the docks. And this was in August. So with this real cloudy weather, the fish had moved way up there. Again, it's the shallow to deeper, somewhere in between. There were shells. So you really got to check it. You can't keep doing the same thing all day 
and assume that they're not biting because they very well might not be there. You know, that's why I like trolling. If I'm, if I'm fishing a spot casting, a lot of times as I leave, I'm going to make a trolling pass. Because number one, I could run the lures deeper. I could run the lures faster. And, and with bass fishing, there's times, or with muskies, there's times you can't reel fast enough to make that fish strike. Um, you know, and I tell you stories where I was casting for bass and something what Buck said made a trolling pass going fast enough that I was almost clinging. Boom, boom, get a five, six, seven pounder in Florida. Well, the guys in shore yelling, come on in for lunch, come on in for lunch. No, no, I got to make a fast trolling pass and boom, boom, boom. So sometimes speed is a real trigger, especially to clear the water. The more important is it's the speed to trigger those fish into biting like that. So, I mean, there's just so many variables in there. You can have all the, the side scanners and live scopes and all the stuff you want. You know, that's just, uh, they're not going to figure that out. Stuff like that. So, I don't know. Common sense and understanding spoon plugging, which it's just understanding the movements, understanding the edges, the structures, the movements of fish. Now, the bass always be in the deep water and move up on points. Like Buck says, well, in reservoirs, probably more so than that. But on natural lakes, you know, they're more weed-related because you don't have those clean bars that break into deep water. So let me get some of these experts, wow, yeah, all right, Buck Curry, you know, he's full of beans. He said this and this and this. And, you know, get stuff that's written 40, 50 years old, uh, and, and some guys are trying to make a name for themselves now want to blow holes in it. Well, you can do do whatever you want, but I've fished with this old man, and I've had him draw stuff out and say stuff, and you can say what you want, but the guy was a genius. I mean, he was well, you know, beyond every, anybody else at that time. So it was amazing. I was really glad to be involved in the golden age of fishing and the education and uh, the progression and, you know, all that stuff. And it's good because it's what I like to do is the learning and teaching and discovering and, you know, that, that whole thing. That, that's what I enjoy the most. I love that you mentioned the golden age of fishing a couple times and how, how you mentioned how it was a while ago. What do you consider us right now? Because, I, I mean, we've argued on the podcast multiple times about how, like, we're in the golden age of musky fishing right now just because of conservation and stocking efforts and, uh, and, and availability and, but it sounds like you're thinking maybe things were better back then. What do you think of, what do you, where do you think we are right now as far as, you know, the musky, um, musky fishing, the musky industry? Well, I think the musky fishing is better now than it ever has been with the stocking programs and release. But what I meant by the golden age was the golden age of education where everything, where the, where the sonars came out. You know, I, I fished with, uh, Laura, Carol Lawrence. I fished with Berkeley Bedell. You know, those are the guys, the pioneers, the guys that really started Buck Perry. And that's what I mean by the golden age up here. It's all starting. Things are starting to come together. People are now starting to learn the excitement of every, you know, being in a class or learning this or this article by Joe Booker on Wally's in the weeds. Wally's in the weeds. You know, you're not in the weeds or one by, you know, Tony Rizzo or suspended muskies and suspended muskies and, you know, then then you start experiencing some of the things yourself, and then some of the things that you're doing. So that's what I call the golden ages is between the, the, the structured teachings and the coming out of the flasher depth finders, where you know I'm lining up the end of the pier with this birdhouse over here and coming straight out there to find my spot. Now I'm not hitting a magic button and 
takes me right there and hits another button and an electric motor holds me right there. So, you know, it's, it's the golden age of learning is um, what I would consider it. Sure. And it was fun. It was more exciting. Yeah, I can, I, I kind of get that a little bit. I mean, because I even think about it in my own fishing right now. You know, you, th- you think about, you know, just going out and how excited you were to do, you know, whatever. And I, and I, I do agree. Like I read, you know, cause I'm not, you know, I'm not old, but I'm not young. And so I'm kind of in that mid, that mid range where I, I grew up without having all the technology, but I also have it now, you know, mostly with the side imaging and stuff like that. And I, I understand that I can, I can totally relate to that excitement that you got. And you read an article and you, and much like you said, you couldn't wait to, uh, to apply it. I can remember, you know, well back to when I was reading Buck's book and I would read it in between trips and you're like, man, I can't wait to go out and, and start to apply some of this stuff. So it's, and definitely a, a a cool. It was a it was a fun time, right? Did you ever get his encyclopedia with the six or seven volumes? Were those the books that were um, more like a magazine style? They were probably a hundred pages or, or or so per each one. Is that is that it? Where there was like nine different volumes? Yeah, I right. I do believe I have that. I can't say that yeah, I never got through all of it, but. I I know exactly where it is in my house too. I would I almost say it's like my prized possession, but. I definitely held him in high regard and I didn't even, I never even knew who the guy was, but his, mm-hmm. it, it more or less just changed the way you thought about things. Right. It wasn't like it was exactly. like, go right. here and do this. It was just kind of opened up your mind in different ways to fish. The thing is I've been down to the Amazon jungle seven times. I've fished the Arctic and you know, you, you go there and it's the same stuff. It's the same principles. Oh, you see, oh, look at that. There, there's some deep water right here and boy, there's a turn. The river turns right there. Let's see, the, um, the outside bends can probably get deeper water in a big overhanging tree right there. That's where the biggest peacock bass in this area should be. You throw in there, bam, 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 you catch a 15-pounder. Because it's the same thing, or you go up to the Arctic, oh, there's a shallow base right here. You know, well, that's that. there's a little more sediment in these bays like that. And maybe there's some cabbage in these bays, and you go in there, and it's like, well, there's no northern pike in this river system. And you go in there, you find a cabbage bed, wham, wham, a couple of big pike come out of there. It's just, it's just the understanding, the knowledge of putting the pieces together. It's just, I really don't ever feel like I got skunked. Um, and my course, must be fishing. You know, there are times you won't catch one. But my feeling is, I tell my classes, you come to these classes, you'll never, you'll never get skunked again. But you might feel like you ran out of time <laughs> once in a while. <laughs> so, I mean, if you got, you got the plan and you're doing this, you're doing that, if you don't catch one, well, I was doing this and I was doing this and they weren't, they weren't biting. They weren't doing this. Dang, I'm, I'm zeroing in on them up. Oh, time to go home. I didn't get stunk. They just ran out of time because I was closing all these options that weren't working. <laughs> that uh, you got to think like that, you know, if you're not confident and then, you know, I didn't know if it's 10,000 casts. Oh, well, 10,000 casts. Yeah, I know, but you just made a hundred. So you're that much closer, even if you believe in 10,000. So hmm. it's just, you have to have a lot of confidence to do a lot of stuff. And I, you know, I never think I'm going to have a bad day. I mean, it's, the weather's so horrible that I'm forced to go out. Like was the other day, my guide friend and I went out, and uh, it was very slow. But we were going to go for muskies on Lake Geneva when the weather was uh, bright and sunny and no wind. And I knew it was just a crapshoot that nothing was going to happen. But if we can get one or two follows and learn a new spot, you know, and even then, I'm not going to use conventional stuff. You know, I'm going to use something that they don't see very often just to try to get one to follow and say, Oh yeah, I live over here. So, you know, you gotta be, you gotta be thinking and planning and all that kind of stuff to really be successful. I believe. 
Well, let me let me ask you something. I know since you're all about the learning part of things, like what would you say like the biggest mistake a an angler that's trolling? What do you think their biggest mistake they make would be? Well, the first mistake is if they're trolling with the steering wheel, which most people will do, they're not going to have the control that you're going to have with a tiller handle. Now, I can go up to Canada and we do that fall trolling thing, and um, there's a lot of times where I'll catch you know a lot more fish than somebody with a steering wheel. Because I've been in a spot one time with uh, one guy, and it was a favorite spot of mine on Lake of the Woods. And there was a boat there with a steering wheel, and I saw him, you know, he made about three, four trolling classes. He didn't get nothing. So I told my buddy, all right, let's go over there and catch a muskie or two. He looked at me like, well, boy, the guy just fished it. I said, he didn't fish it right. I said, how do you know he didn't fish it right? I said, because there's a real sharp inside turn in there, and you can't make that cut with the steering wheel. So we ended up going over and cut two muskies in a big northern. So, because he couldn't make that cut, I knew he couldn't do it right. And I'm not saying this happens all the time, but it happens enough places where I can react better and faster than you can with a steering wheel. Like Jimmy Sarek, he knows it. And anybody will say, yeah, but I go out there with firepower. So I put out six rods. I smell, you know, and he knows a solar. But when you're allowed to, you know, if you use one rod in Minnesota, or Canada or something like that. So I say the one thing is, you know, boat control. Uh, the other thing, patrolling uh, would be knowing depth of your lure and how it is in relationship to, to the structure. You know, if I'm trolling a, a lake that has a drop at 12 feet, I'm not going to troll 13 or 14 because all of a sudden if I come up on a point, then I'll go right over the top of it. I'd rather go out a couple feet deeper so when I come out of point, I can make a little adjustment and go right up the tip where the fish would more tend to be than sitting on top of the bar unless the bar is real deep. So, you know, bow control, precision, and putting the lure, knowing how fast, uh, how deep the lures run. And before we had the no bow line with what very thing. Now we got line counter reels. So you should have a half a dozen crankbaits that you like and know how deep this one's going in 30 feet, how deep this one's going in 40 feet. And just, you know, just know four or five of your five favorite crankbaits that you can, you know, really know where, where, where the heck they're going. Um, and the other thing too, when I'm trolling is if I come off a point, I just don't go around the point. I usually head out over open water and go out there another 50, 75 yards, make a big circle and come back the other side of the point. Because a lot of times you catch a suspended fish or a fish might be following your bait. And when you make that big turn like that, boom, I'm, probably the biggest muskie we had in the boat was caught in a situation like that. Made a big turn like that after coming off a point. And I think the fish would either followed it and when the change in direction came, he hit it or else he was suspended out there. But, you know, 55 and a half inch or, you know, wherever he saw it didn't matter because he got him. So it's, it's, you know, it's the precision uh, of trolling, you know, and of course the speed. Um, I'm fishing up there in mid 40, high 40s, and I'm going, you know, usually at least three and a half miles an hour. Uh, those fish can just flick their tail and catch something like, like nothing. So, you know, it's just like I say, it's boat control, speed, knowing your lures, and, um, you know, I'll catch fish trolling uh, all the way till, I'm probably. 42, 43 degrees. At that point, they started dropping down to the base of, of the drop-offs. So while you're trolling three, four miles an hour on the Braxel top of the brake line, 
as the weather gets real cold, then you got to go down deeper and go down to about two, two and a half miles an hour. You have to slow your speed and go deeper then to stay on those fish on the same spots. So if you're out there doing the same thing, well, they're not biting, they're not just lost because when the water's real cold, they drop down deeper as a rule. Like I say, there's no, nothing's ironclad, but you know, more likely than not, that's what's happening. So. I love how you talked about, you know, trolling with a, with a tiller versus a steering wheel. I learned that lesson this past weekend. So I haven't had, I have a Tuffy boat. It's got a, a kicker motor and it's, it's tied in with the big motor and I hadn't used it in quite a while. Probably, I don't know, probably three years. I bet you it's been since I trolled out of it. And so my daughter wanted to troll locally and I was like, uh, with, with a couple people in the boat, it's just nicer because my, my other boat's a little, a smaller tiller. And so you know, weight distribution, if one person's lean, you know, if you got two people leaning one way and you still got the boat and motor or the boat in gear, it kind of starts tracking off. But I, I tell you, it was the same thing. I'm like, man, you really can't have as good a boat control with this as you can with my tiller boat. Cause I, I troll solo out of my tiller quite a bit. And it, I learned that lesson this past weekend. So it's ironic that you said something about it. Cause it's absolutely a hundred percent true. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yes. So I, you know, you said that you t- you talked about some of your, you, you got to have your your five baits that you really want to have. Uh, let's just say, what's what's one or two must have trolling baits in your opinion? Grandma's Jake's and Depth Raiders, I'd say, a pretty good start. It would cover anything from you know six seven feet of water all the way down. Sometimes I'll use a. Um, a shallow invader if I'm really trolling shallow edges. Um, if I got a shallow edge, another thing, let's say you're going somewhere and for example, um, Coleman's reef on, on Eagle Lake, which is where one of the world records were caught and all that. And it's a good spot for muskies. And if you cast it, uh, it'll take you quite a while to cast the whole thing. But if the wind's blowing across the lake and banging into it, bashing into it, and putting up, you know, little white caps on top of it, then you know, people aren't going to cast it, particularly if the wind's going right into it, because you're in and out, in and out, in and out, and you're not getting any sideward coverage on it for the most part. So I'll take something like a shallow invader. Uh, it's a good trolling rope for shallow water, and I'll go and I'll run it, and I know where the little projections are, and I'll stay out there, and, you know, seven or eight feet of water, and I'm coming across the tips, and five or six or seven feet of water, I'll make a trolling pass. It'll take me six minutes, seven minutes to make a trolling pass along the front face of, of uh, Coleman Island that can't be fished by casters under the conditions that you're in. Now, do I always catch one? No, but I'd say about one out of every three times I'll do this under those conditions. There's times I've done it five times on a trip and caught three. So it's just a matter of doing something, you know, a little different. That's what trolling allows you to do. Um, you know, or, or trolling spinner baits on an overcast day over massive weed beds, just zigzagging all around like that. And I've got a monkey up to 51 inches doing that, and a lot of smaller ones. But you know, just, just there's just times when it just works better. And like I say, I've, a lot of times you cast a spot, cast a weed edge, cast a rocky drop off, cast it, cast it, cast it. Spent a half hour doing it, and as I went to leave, Throw a couple of crankbaits off the back of the boat and just 100, 150 yard stretch you did, you just rip, you go through it. Two or three minutes, you've gone through it. And if there's any deeper fish or that wanted more depth and more speed, you have a good chance of catching them. It's just like, hey, I'm a carpenter, I'm building a house, but 
I don't have a hammer or they gave me a hammer, but they didn't give me a saw. It's another tool that enables you to catch more fish by, by using both of things together. And then you get somebody, well, I don't like to troll. I don't care. Don't troll. You know, I don't care what you want to do. Just don't tell me I'm wrong for trolling or anybody can catch from trolling. Cause that's not true. Cause it's more, it's harder to make a good trolling pass on erratic shorelines and fingers than it is to cast. You know, any dumb way can cast. You know, some guys can cast better than others, but you know, it's no big deal casting. You know, you put a lure on, you hit the, you hit the, you know, the your button, it's the cruise control, on, you know, the tension button. And if it falls real slow, like that, and you shake it a couple of times, it falls real slow, then you should be able to take that door, throw it out, and not even put your thumb on the reel if you want you to, you know, get it right. So don't tell me how, you know, trolling is always for old people. And well, I am an old people, but still, when I was a young people, I still did it. Because so, I know how good it could be. And again, like I say, after you fish a spot, throw, throw a crankbait out, make a trolling run as you're leaving and going to the next spot. What did it take you? 5% of the time it took you to cast it. But yet, over the end of, by the end of the year, you'll probably catch 20 to 30% more fish for 5% more time. So do what you want, but that's what I do. Yeah. I always say I'm, I'm not a caster or a troller. I just like catching muskies and I don't care how we have to do it, but you know, you, you take it a step farther. I mean, it sounds like you're willing to, you know, cast a spot and then, you know, make a, a trolling pass backwards over the spot or back across the spot or however you want to say it. And, and try to pick one off that would give you a, a different, um, presentation than what you would have offered, uh, casting right and what about a fish suspended out of points how many people are going to go there and start making casts out to open water not too many you'll make one or two but if you're trolling and you're coming off that point you come around that point and zigzag around a little bit and then go down the other side of the point again what did that take how long did that take two minutes three minutes but yet you know any fish that was following or any fish that's suspended you have a good chance of catching them sure you know, I, I'm going back to, I, I, as we do podcasts, I generally write notes down of some of the things that I, that I, uh, I hear people saying. So you talked about, you never get skunked. You just run out of time, which is, I, I feel that's a very accurate statement, but you know, for newer anglers, let's just talk, how, how often are you changing things up? You know, you talked about trying shallow, deep, or, you know, they're either shallow, deep or somewhere in between, which is absolutely something I've read. How long are you going to try to spend, you know, in shallow and how long are you going to try to spend in deep? And obviously like you, you said it also, there's no hard, fast rules in musky fishing, but you know, in general throughout the course of a day, what do you think your, your game plan would be like that? It's impossible to give you a number. What could I say? 20% here, 30% here, 50% there. I'm going to do what I think is best for a while. You know, fishing an hour or two, I don't see anything that I'm, probably going to change but a lot of it depends on the weather you know if it's cloudy and overcast like that well i'm not going to go deep for quite a while because chances are i'm going to get something in shallow water you know with those conditions if it's bright and sunny well i'm not going to go shallow under you know 95 percent of the conditions so it's if i fish a spot if i got some good spot and that spot and i feel like i fished them correctly and don't get nothing, then I'll, then I'll start, you know, looking at other things. You know, fish may be sitting up high or if they're down deeper in the bottom, then I might use a, uh, a tube or a deep running crankbait and start, you know, ripping through the, the weeds like that to get down at them. 
you know, it's not always burning a bucktail two feet under the surface because maybe they're not going to come up. So, you know, it's just so much of it is a gut feeling. I, I, I can't give you a percentage. I'm, but one thing I can tell you, I'm not going to do the same thing all day. That That's not going to happen. So it's just too much depends on where I'm fishing, where I'm fishing, the weather conditions. As the weather changes too, I might change. You know, I would change probably. I mean, I like to fish the wind. I like to look for watercolor. Like if I go to some of these lakes that have, you know, big lakes, like Lake of the Woods or Eagle or something like that, I'll start out and I might start out fishing in water that's a little bit clearer. As soon as that sun starts coming up, I'm getting out of there. I'm going into stained water. And the, and the brighter and sunnier it gets, the darker the water I'm going to go look for. I might end up going slop fishing for muskies in five feet of water in the back ends of, of weed-choked bays under real sunny conditions because I'm sure and heck not going to get anything in the clear open water. So I, I adjust based on water color and, uh, you know, the wind. and uh, so I always like to, not always, most of the time I like to fish the wind. Either cast the wind or if it's too windy, then troll those windy areas where, again, people aren't usually doing it because the casters don't want to fish there because it's too windy and they may not be able to make the trolling passes I'm making with the tiller handle along those rocks and jutting fingers and stuff with a, with a, uh, a steering wheel. So if they try to troll it, they can't do it very effectively. And most of them won't anyway. Well, I don't like to troll, you know, so I'm fine. So what do you want to do? I just want to catch muskies. You know, if, if I had to use a dough ball uh, and it was the best bait, you know, I'd be looking for some chartreuse dye for cloudy days to put on the dough ball. <laughs> Whatever. I like what you said there. You know, I I think one thing as musky anglers, a lot of us are guilty of not changing things up enough or not changing things up fast enough. I know sometimes we get stuck in a rut, you know, like you assume, okay, the fish are going to be in shallow during this time of year or this, or this particular day or however you want to go about it. And you'll, you'll end up staying there all day long and you won't end up catching anything. And you're like, oh, I guess they weren't biting like you had mentioned, you know, earlier in the podcast. And I think that whereas if you maybe would have changed it up, you possibly could have had different results, but I think we kind of get preconceived notions and we kind of stick with that. Well, there's a lot of times I'm, you know, I've got three lures on my rod and by the time I get to where I want to go, I change them all without having to make a cast yet. So, you know, it's just, like I say, I, I fished by the seat of my pants and it's not, you know, preconceived this or this or that, or here's what I'm going to do, or what's your favorite lure? And my favorite lure is, is you can look at my box, it's the one with the most scrapes on it. That's the one I like the best. So, I don't know, I just, um, I, I am what I am. You know, it's all these years. Um, I'm not going to change. I've been, you know, fairly successful uh, doing what I did for the last uh, 50 years. I'm more than that. Wow, I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Spence, throughout the course of your you know, your time on the water, I'm sure you've caught lots of memorable fish. Do you have a, you know, a story of one of the more memorable fish you've caught? Well, I'd say I've caught a lot of bigger ones, but this one I caught last week on Lake Geneva. As a kid, I was always hoping, boy, I wish they put, that's the lake I like the best. I fish a lot. I guide on it, Lake Bravass. But uh, I always think, wow, it would be nice if they had had muskies in Lake Geneva. And then, you know, back, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago, they started stocking them. Oh boy, I hope I live long enough to where, where they get big enough to catch a 30 pounder, you know, 48, 50 inch. Oh boy. 
And then last Tuesday, I lost one about 50 and then caught a real fat 48. So that was certainly one of the most memorable fish I ever had, even though I caught many fish bigger than that. It was just the circumstances leading up to that fish was, uh, was real good. You know, and I've got some big ones that uh, I saw during the day and then went back at right at dusk and, you know, changed baits around. I caught a real big one. Uh, Eagle Lake, right at dusk. Uh, I saw him during the day. Went back at night um, at the top water. And I caught him on a on a, a, dip, a top raider on a figure eight. Opened his mouth and looked like a white bucket. You know, swallowing it in. And um, that was it's just I don't know. Every every big fish has a little bit of a a story to it. You know, and I think that probably those were two that uh, most memorable to me or the most that meant us as much. I got some big ones, you know, different places, you know, it's just, after a while they become, yeah, they're great, but there's not, you know, a real big thrill in there like there was many years ago or recently because of the circumstances. So. Hey Brad, you got anything to add to this uh, conversation? Well, I kind of felt like I was left out over here. You uh... <laughs> thought you went to sleep there. Well, he, he got me talking about Buck Perry. That's probably one of my favorite things to talk about because, I don't know, like I said, I almost idolize the guy. And I've never even met him. I don't even know what he looks like. Well, honestly, he's an old Southerner, and he died when he was, I think, 93 or 94. But he was in his, you know, 55, we'd go fishing, and I'd go to pick up the, you know, 9-9 nine, nine or 15 horse that he had for a little boat. And, oh, get away from me, boy, I can handle that, and he'll pick it up, and. I used to think, you know, he was, he was an old, tough old guy, but, you know, 55, guy or 60, that's nothing. You know, I used to see my father-in-law at 60 be working in the yard. Look at that guy, 60 years old. Shit, that's what I was doing all morning. And, you know, 81 years old working in the yard, and I'm going back out there as soon as we finish this. But I don't like to sit around. If it was an overcast day or decent, I'd be out fishing today. But uh, I've learned when to go. And one thing nice about being by Geneva if I feel like going, I just yeah, get my boat and I just go out there. We'll fish two, three hours and come back. So I've learned when to fish it and when not to fish it. So. Well, I definitely think uh, after listening to all this, I need to go back and read the book again. It's been probably 20 <laughs> years and I'll have to go knock some dust off of it. But uh, I, I've always known about the book. I've read it. But it's been a long time, and I do think that it affected some of the way I fished as well. Where was Buck Perry from originally, Spence? Uh, Hickory, North Carolina. Okay, North Carolina. I I wasn't sure if he was from West Virginia, Virginia. I knew it was somewhere out east, but I I couldn't remember. Yeah, I think I think it's North Carolina or South Carolina. I think it's North Carolina, and he made his money and they had factories that made furniture. And, and golf clubs and you know fishing was just you know a side thing for him that was nothing he made a lot of money you know buying land and doing this and he was well off and you know he's a very smart guy he was um uh, where he got these all these terms as structures and brake line and and this and that he did work for i think it was the tennessee where they were building roads and the geological formations and told them where to cut through the mountain and did that because he had some kind of uh, knowledge of, of that kind of stuff. But it's funny. He goes somewhere and he goes, well, you go here now to sand. We'll be on the south end of this place is right here. That's where the deposits will be. Because the glaciers came from the northwest here. 
and the sand deposits will be over here. And then you go here and it, I mean, it's just like one thing after another. It's like, where is this coming from? Like it's there about the shad slicks or, or di- during diagrams on points, what kind of point would hold a bunch of school of bass or which ones won't and why. And, you know, it's just, just full of things like that. And it's just too bad that some of these younger guys just don't understand, you know, it was not some, you know, bass guy that discovered all this. And, and many of those bass guys are really good guys. I know a lot of them, particularly older guys. There's nothing wrong with it, but a lot of those guys get get got early starts. Got a hold of buck stuff. I know Roland was certainly one of them. There's others too that got a hold of that stuff, and it put them on the uh, the fast track to the early successes that they had because they got a jump on everybody. Just like there was times that all the good fishermen in the country just about all knew each other because there wasn't that many guys that really had it put together. You know, I know the guys in Pennsylvania who was the best or this guy over here and you got the lenders and the the, the, the uh, Nisawa guide crew over here and then you got these people over here and you know this Len Hartman was from Chicago the lenders were from uh, Franklin Park a suburb in Chicago and there's you know there's um, a lot of good fishermen came from places where fishing was tough Buck, Buck spoon plugging that never went over in the south because the fishing was too good and the southerners didn't want to listen to him so he had to come up here to the chain of lakes, the hard fish chain of lakes in, in northern Illinois and in Detroit. He came up he came up here to the chain of lakes and he was here about a week. And the fishing had gone to pot, to nothing. But what had happened is the chain of lakes started getting more and more uh, houses and more and more water pollution. And the weed line used to extend to the drop off. So as the water got darker, the weed line receded in, and the fishermen, uh, the local hotshots on the chain, followed the weeds, and all of a sudden, man, you know, the bass weren't there in numbers like they used to be. So Buck came up here, and he spent, I don't know, a week or 10 days fishing the chain, and he had it wired pretty good. A couple of points where these bass came up in his Lake Marie, and so he invited Tom McNally, who was the big-time outdoor writer at the Chicago Tribune at the time, to come on out, and I want to show you this spoon plug technique. So we let Tom McNally go out and fly fish and do all his thing. He caught a bass about three pounds. And so Buck knew that this movement was going to be, let's say, quarter, nine, nine o'clock. That's what he had it patterned real good. So then he started trolling his boom plugs. Boom, he got a bass, boom, bang, 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 anchored on this point, start throwing out, and, and he ended up catching 20 bass. I think it was him and, and they had, I think, whatever the limit was, I think it was 10 bass, but they had a limit of 20 bass from three, three and a half to five, five and a half pounds on a long stick. And then, and McNally wrote an article in the Sunday trip. There's professor Perry with his spoon plugging technique. Wallops the bass on Lake Marie, a fished out Lake Marie. Well, Klein sporting good. It was already set up where they had spoon plugs. The following day, the lines were around the corner and in these lines was, Tony Porky Queso, the Linders, me, and, and God knows who else. But I know these people were, were in there buying this magic lure. But he never said what happened. The fish were still on the structure. They didn't follow the weeds in. And he came out there and just trolled the structure and got into an anchoring position, which he knew, and then cast out and started walking the blowers up to this point and just, just pounded them. So that's really got the whole thing going in the Chicago area. And then he did the same thing in Detroit. And he did the same thing somewhere else, but he, it all happened in the north because that's where 
the fishermen were hungry for knowledge because they weren't they didn't have the kind of fishing that they had in the south, and you didn't want to tell them nothing. They didn't want to listen. They they knew everything there was to know. So, um, there you know, there's a million stories about him. They they hired him in some lakes in Florida that the locals were afraid that the uh, the orange groves and pesticides pesticides um, ruined the bass fishing in those lakes. So they hired the orchard people hired him to go and show them that there's still bass in these lakes. So he went down there trolling, trolling, trolling. Actually, there's a, there's a, a video on this, an old 16 millimeter film and they're trolling, trolling. And, and he says, he's bringing his lures in. They get mud on him and what's happening. The bottom is all silted. And he found one area out in the middle of the lake, just such a hard bottom. And every bass in the lake was on his brake length. And he ended up coming in with a string of bass. That was ridiculous. You know, Eight pounds, nine pounds, eleven pounds, six pounds. He brought them all in. Hey, there's nothing wrong with this lake. Look at all these bass. Well, he hit the mother load of all the bass on the lake, and they, you know, they paid him you know, X amount of dollars, and they didn't get the big lawsuit. But sure, there's a lot of bass in the lake. You guys just don't know how to catch them. You know, that, that kind of thing. And he felt bad about it, but you know, it's a job. They brought him in there to catch these bass, and no, he did. So there's just there's just so much different stuff about him. He's I just wish he was around if somebody just got with them and got all these stories and, and just wrote a book, you know, on, on Buck and some of the things that he went through. And, you know, it was nice fishing with him and him tell you some of the stuff. And uh, he, was a, he was a true genius. He, a lot of people owe him a lot, and they have no idea um, who he is, who, who he was or is or whatever the case may be or what he brought to the modern fishing. But well, I saw it, and it's real. So I got to ask, Spence, what other books are out there that maybe some of these anglers could uh, potentially read and gain more information? Uh, well, <laughs> of course, all the in-fishermen. You got all the in-fishermen stuff, which is, you know, it's been really good. They were with us at Fishing Facts for many years, and then they were supposed to do a Fishing Facts television show. And my boss, George Tazik, had to make a decision. Who's going to be our main guy? Is it going to be the Linders or it's going to be Buck Perry? So George sort of sided with Buck Perry and then the Linders went out and started the Infisherman and he gave him our mailing list to help him get started, you know, that's, and they did and they were doing things right. You know, a lot of things they did, we should have been doing, but you know, my boss had a, a great man, but he had the Napoleon complex where you couldn't tell him anything and he didn't really know how to fish. So that's what happened. It was uh, um, just the beginning of the end uh, over there. But a lot of these books that are just some self-promotion and BS and I don't know. It's sort of like Roland's book, um, you know, 100 Bass Catching Patterns and stuff like that where he talks about different ways to catch that. But in terms of just the learning from A to, to B, C, I don't really know there's anything that that teaches the logic behind it other than like I say uh, some of the in-fisherman stuff and most of that now I mean how much stuff is really new that you're going to read in a, in a magazine you know so I don't know too bad I don't have my still don't have my classes but after 41 years I said you know that's enough after four, four or five years ago I just stopped doing them so but it was fun yeah that's truly remarkable that many years uh, doing that type of classroom type stuff um, and there is a few of those, uh, there's different things out there right now today, like road rules and some of the seminars at the shows and so on and so forth. But 
I think a lot of times that classroom stuff, you can get a little bit more in depth and I think there's more opportunity for questions and so on and so forth. So I think that setting is maybe a little bit better way than a normal seminar, I would say. But well, it um, was. It was good. a lot of handouts, you know, different things. I would have passed out every class. I'd have two or three or four handouts and these guys would, you know, build up a little file for the classes and how to do this and how to do that, the correct way to put line on your reel, what about this, and when do you use mono, when do you use braid, when do you use fluorocarbon, what about, you know, just, and every week I would have these handouts, you know, and so you know, guys would take them and store them and use them, and so it was good, and mark maps of different lakes and where you could fish, and, you know, top lakes in Minnesota, top lakes in Wisconsin, top lakes, you know, recommended places for walleyes, so there was a lot of muskies or pike or bass or whatever. So it was good. You know, it was, it was you know, quite a bit of work, but, you know, it was, it was good. And the classes were always full. I had, you know, 85, 90 every Tuesday night, every Wednesday night. And in the beginning, I'd have, it would be bass panfish on Tuesday and it would be walleyes, pike muskies on Wednesday. And then when they were over, then I'd have an advanced class on Thursdays, which about half the people, of the first two would go into the advanced class. So it was fun. I got to know a lot of people and many of them are my guide clients now and in, in May and June and early July. An awesome run, that's for sure. Are we going to see you at the uh, Chicago Muskie Expo this year, maybe Milwaukee? I'm supposed to get knee replacement in January because I, I have a hell of a time walking right now. It's really hard. So I don't know. Um, I've been doing a sport Milwaukee show for a couple of years, the last few years. And I don't know if I'm going to do any shows this year, or even go to them, um, because I will just see how the knee turns out because I'm waiting until early January. And, uh, I had a new valve put in the heart and, um, I mean, that worked out fine. Now I got to get the knee done and, you know, it'll be my thousand, a hundred thousand miles checkup and maybe I'll be good for another 50,000 miles or so. So I, I can't really say what's going to happen after early January so hopefully this helps me a lot well if, if you do make it Spence I would love it if you swing swung by the uh, the booth that's for sure and I know Jeff would appreciate that as well I would certainly do that yeah absolutely so uh, Spence are you still I mean do you book any other clients yet for your for your guide dates that you have in you know June July and August are you open I, I mean are you open to the public I guess I would say yeah that's yeah, not a problem and so, if yeah, pe- May, May, June, early July. And if people wanted to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Well, I'm on Facebook. They could look at my website, or, which has my phone number on it, or I can give you my phone number, um, 815-451-8594. Perfect. Well, Spence, um, I want to thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule. And uh, Brad, I can't believe we waited 195 episodes to get him on. I, there's <laughs> this is the stuff that I I live for as far as that. I love, you know, talking about movements and structure and all that kind of stuff and and different techniques. So I want to thank you for you know for taking your time out of your schedule to come do it. Um, it's a pleasure talking to you guys. I hope maybe if you'd be open to it, we'd we'd have you on again in the future. And you know, we wish you the best of luck with your. Uh, you know, your upcoming surgeries, and uh, and I hope that you have a great fall yet. I, I mean, I would imagine you'll probably still get on the water yet this fall? Yeah, probably tomorrow. <laughs> 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 if the weather's, if the weather's decent, I'll be on there, and I'll be, if I'm still alive, I'll be happy to do your show again. 
absolutely. Well, hopefully, hopefully that's not something that we have to worry about anytime soon. So no, I'll be all right. All right. Well, thank you very much, sir. We really appreciate your time. And uh, for our listeners, we want to thank you all for putting up with us again for another episode. And we'll catch everybody again next week. All right. Thanks, guys.